Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Surviving to Thriving podcast. Today I have with me Magda Khalifa. She is the founder of the Freedom Triangle, is a first-generation American U.S. Army combat veteran, business owner, speaker, and best-selling author of American Dream, Discipline, Resilience, Endurance, Adaptability, and Mentorship to Succeed and Win in Life. After witnessing the attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001, she left her comfortable life behind to join the military. After two, year, after two tours in Iraq, she struggled with transition and health issues. Magda succeeded in turning her life around and shares her success path through the Freedom Triangle framework, introduced to the world in her memoir. She has since launched the first veteran-owned luxury fragrance line, Triangle Fragrance, featuring confidence for women and victory for men. Magda continues to inspire and guide people by speaking about her unique story, perspective, and example of no excuses, all in tenacity and grit. To learn more, visit magdakhalifa.com. Magda, welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. Great to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to have this interview. I know we've been trying to get it on the books for a little bit, so I'm very excited that you are here today. Likewise. Great to be here. Definitely. So, Let's jump into it. What was it like growing up for Magda? Yeah, so I had um, a pretty happy childhood. Grew up in uh, northern Jersey in the suburbs, right outside New York City. Pretty happy. You know, my parents were together. I was very fortunate for that. They both immigrated here from different countries. They met in New York City, and I was the firstborn. So, you know, we loved life, traveled whenever we could. And, you know, my father was very good about introducing us kids to new ideas, you know, like he, he was a very intelligent man and he was a very open-minded man. So, you know, we enjoyed everything about this area, all the culture, all, you know, we enjoyed travel, we enjoyed learning about things, science, everything, you know, so I, I feel it was a very uh, fruitful childhood in terms of learning and growing. Definitely. That sounds like it is a very happy childhood for sure. And that you got to experience a lot more than maybe normal kids in America wouldn't get to experience, not only because of, you know, being able to travel and, and do that, but having a, you know, both of your parents are not from America. So they, you know, obviously brought their culture with them. So you got to experience the diversity in your parents' culture and American culture. So actually, no, we didn't. <laughs> we grew up pretty American, you know, okay. hot dogs, hamburgers, and Fourth of July because they were from two very different countries. They met in New York, so they didn't speak each other's language. So we, you know, we spoke English at home, and you know, we just were integrated into American culture. You know, going back, and I kind of wish I had ties to have learned, you know, the cultures of both of both sides, just because I think that would have, you know, made me even you know, more worldly and able to communicate if I knew the different languages, but alas. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, but I mean, that's, I mean, very interesting that that happens, you know, usually it's the other way around, but that's really 
kind of um, cool that your parents were just like, let's set aside our differences and, you know, become one new difference. <laughs> I, absolutely. And, and that's what I love to see in the examples. You know, my mom always, you know, put the American flag outside and, you know, she said, we're in America. That's what you do. You know, like that was like emphasized, like they were so grateful for being here and for coming over. And, you know, while, while dad was educated, mom, you know, wasn't, you know, she, you know, just went through the, the public school system up through high school. So they both had different stories coming over here, but it was just a mix of, you know, gratitude for being in this country and the opportunities that were available in this country because they both knew, you know, dad was from Egypt, mom was from Colombia, two very, very different countries. Yes. And, you know, they, they both knew like what America stood for and they, you know, made the trip over. So I just saw that example and had that appreciation just from, from when I was a little child of, of how great it is to be born here in America. Did that play a role in your decision to join the military? Because I know that, I mean, when September 11th happened, I mean, I was still very young when it happened, but I, I vividly remember it. And I, you know, can remember where I was, what I was doing and all of these things, but I didn't go and join the military because of it. Do you think that your parents' love for this country and respect for this country played a huge part in why you decided to join? I, I think that definitely was a part of who I was. You know, I, I love, love and loved this country. So it, you know, obviously was the right thing to do. They certainly didn't steer me in that direction, but it just made sense because if, you know, that phrase, if not us, who, you know, so when we were attacked, it, it was a no brainer to me to go and serve. You know, my husband who I was married to had already served. He was out of the military. He was a Marine, but I didn't. And when the, those attacks happened, I, I, I you know, and I talk about it in the book, I needed to do something and I had no skills to help. It just made sense to be part of it because that's what our country needed at that time. And uh, so, yes, I do believe that environment of growing up, loving America, patriotism, you know, was instilled in me. And that obviously, you know, led to my decisions. Definitely. So let's go back just a little bit. So, you know, you grew up in this pretty normal American household and what did you do in high school? What did that lead you to do? Did you go to college? Um, it sounds like you didn't turn 18 when uh, the attacks happened and joined the military. It sounds like you're a little bit older than uh, high school age, but when the attacks happened. So what was life like in the in between from you know high school to military? Yeah. So uh, as soon as I graduated high school, uh, uh, went to college that fall. But I had been working for years anyway, you know, part-time jobs, whatever I could do. And uh, so I was all about working and making money, you know, because to me, money, making money was survival. Making money was independence. So while I had a happy childhood, being the firstborn and being a girl, <laughs> I definitely, you know, butted heads with my father in high school, you know, and on one hand, he was raising me to be very independent, but at the same point, he still wanted to protect his daughter. And, you know, so all the rules came down and, you know, I wasn't allowed to date anything like that, you know, and of course I was being rebellious and didn't like that kind of control. So I was driven more so to, to make money so that I can have my independence as soon as I could, you know, it was just classic, you know, father, teenage daughter struggle, if you will. But anyway, so, so I worked, I loved work because, 
you know, while I couldn't stay out late, you know, I had a curfew or whatnot. If I was working, I was able to stay out. So that was fine. I was making money and I got to surround myself with adults, you know, which I found, you know, to be much more interesting than, than kids my age, if you will. So, um, you know, after high school, knocked out the college in four years, you know, didn't really want to go, but I'm glad I did just to get it out of the way, but uh, worked, worked, you know, two, three part-time jobs. And yeah, so that's, that's basically what I did. Then uh, got married rather young and went, you know, full-time as soon as I finished uh, college into the workforce. And at that point I was, you know, I had a career in the information technology a track. Basically I worked in the computer field in the nineties. So that was a very lucrative time. You know, my husband worked in that field as well. So we were dual income, no kids, dinks as they call it. And, you know, for about six years, you know, we had a good life, traveled as well, you know, worked for what we had and enjoyed life. You know, every weekend, you know, we were doing the Monday through Friday grind. And then on the weekends, we'd go somewhere on the motorcycles or, you know, take a drive somewhere, do something. And we had a big social life together with the other couples in our neighborhood who were our age as well. So life was pretty merry (laughs) for the most part, you know, until September 11th happens, of course. Yeah. You know, and that's my husband was not there that day, but he worked in an office on the 101st floor. So he lost almost 200 coworkers. So it was very, very personal for, well, for everybody in the area. Everybody knows somebody that was, that was there in the vicinity or whatnot. But yeah, so that was uh, the big wake up call in my life, you know, the big, wow, you know, where I basically went through the shock, the anger, and I need to do something. And that's, where I joined the military. Amazing. So what was, what was joining the military like? Because that is a, a feat in, its, in and of its own and, you know, takes a, a different type of mindset for sure. And a lot of people, you know, don't even make it through basic. So what was it like in that whole process? Yeah. So the physical part wasn't an issue. I was always, you know, I don't want to say an athlete, but I always worked out, you know, <laughs> I wasn't uh, at my best performance level till years later, but you know, that part was not the challenging part since I went in, I think I was 30 years old when I went to basic training. So the whole idea of, you know, I, I made that commitment to, I knew I was going to be losing my freedom and just becoming a number. I had to lose my individuality to be a part of this. And so I knew that and I made that conscious decision, but that was definitely a transition, you know, for me, but the reward, you know, being part of a team and being part of a force for good, you know, a force that was going to protect and defend our country. Like that was second to none, you know, and being part of a, a long lineage, you know, history of warriors who fought to defend and protect our constitution and our freedoms. You can't put a price on that. So on a tactical level, you know, on a day to day, yeah, it was an adjustment at first, but I adjusted rather quickly. <laughs> you kind of have no choice. You either adjust right. or you don't, <laughs> but, but it was a whole new life. It was a whole new life. You know, so I knew I chose it. I didn't know exactly what it would entail, but you know, no regrets. It was the best decision because, you know, seeing what I saw that day and those days after, after the attacks to the country and the city that I love absolutely, you know, solidified my uh, resolve to do my part. Definitely. So how quickly from when you joined, did you have your first tour in Iraq? Because, you know, I know there was a spike of um, enlistment, right, right after September 11th. And some people waited days and some people waited 
months. So how quickly did you um, get sent into a war zone? So I had to go through six months of training for the job I was doing. Three, what was it? Three months of basic training and Mm -hmm. then three months of the specialized training, the AIT. So at that point I was, I mean, I guess you could say a free agent. I was an army reservist and we had different rotations going, you know, being rotated of, of the units headed over to war. So I asked my home unit, which was in Staten Island, New York, can you put me on the next rotation headed over? And, you know, some people in the unit said, hey, you know, you might as well sit and wait until we all go. So you, we know you, we'll take care of you. I said, no, I didn't join to sit and wait, you know, right. send me over. So, so they did. They found a unit that was deploying out of Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. So I went over in, we actually hit country February 2004. Wow. So what was it like being a female in an in a combat zone? Because there are not many of you. It is a very rare time to have females in in combat zones like it just passed last year that they were able to join the infantry i think if if i'm correct so what was it like or not maybe not join the infantry but officially go into uh well yeah so yeah you know what i'm talking about right 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 there was some official you know hey they could be part of you know uh, line units and whatnot but like yeah. we kind of like all of us women who've served for the past you know, since 2001, kind of laugh because it's like, we've been doing that since day one, meaning serving in the front lines because yeah, like <laughs> um, that's what we were doing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I do highlight the story of my battle buddy, specialist Nicole Fry. She was killed three days after we got in country, 19 years old um, from Wisconsin. So I do share her story in my book because I, I think it's important to obviously you know, we always need to honor and remember those that we lost and haven't been close to her. I felt that was important as well to share her story. But from a woman's standpoint, she was the first woman special operations warrior that was killed in combat. She was driving a soft skin Humvee and killed by a roadside bomb. So, you know, the whole, I don't, get into the whole political thing of like, you know, women in the front lines, this, that, and the other, you know, whatever nomenclature they want to do. She was killed in combat in 2004. Yeah. No, I, I you know, I, I think that it, it, it doesn't matter who you are. If you've died for this country, you need to definitely be remembered and, and have that, that story shared. So I think it's amazing Absolutely. that, that you have put that in there and kind of, you know, stepped aside from yourself, allowing her story to be shared. She's awesome. Yeah. Well, it, it's important, you know, yeah. um, capture history and, you know, uh, honor, honor and remember our, our fallen warriors who gave all for our country. Definitely. So you did two years in Iraq and then you came home. What was, uh, that transition like for you? Yeah. So I went over, spent most of 2004, came home for 2005 and then went back 2006 to 2007. So the last three, four, five months of my time in country were, you know, was during the surge, a surge operation. So it was pretty intense, definitely the most intense period of my time over there. We lost a lot of brothers and sisters. So coming home after, you know, two years with a little break in the middle, I was exhausted, you know, physically, just, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I felt like I hit a brick wall, you know, kind of felt like I was ripped from the womb because as a reservist, you know, we were pulled out from the units we were attached to. 
So basically your family, you know, is left back there and then you come home and you're alone. You know, we had a week about processing and then, you know, I, I came home, I had marital problems with going through a divorce. You know, I mean, I was definitely like most vets, you know, I needed that decompression time, but I didn't know it at the time. You know, I thought I was fine. I had my, my limbs, my eyesight, I wasn't burned, you know, so I thought I was fine. But yet I know I wasn't feeling fine. And, you know, looking back, I know I was probably uh, a bit of work. <laughs> so that didn't help. You know, I come from a very, you know, strong-willed family, if you will, you know, with my parents in their own right. So, you know, it was it was a volatile mix. And uh, there was a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding, whatever. You know, it was just a bad time. And uh, I couldn't, you know, really relate to anyone. I felt naked without my uh, M4 at my side. It was just the weirdest transition, you know. But thankfully, thankfully, I guess since maybe because I was older and maybe because I had, you know, a, a full life and career and all that before I went in, I knew what to turn to to start getting through each day. So I got a condo down in Virginia Beach, you know, had a, a full time job as a contractor and just worked saved the money and reclused and stayed home and suffered in silence really, because at that point, the, you know, going, this was 2007, mind you. So I mean, it seems like a, a long time ago and in many ways it was, but there were not a lot of understanding or there was not a lot of understanding as to, you know, why you may be experiencing, you know, depression, anxiety and other things and being so tired. And it wasn't until years later that I started to find some clues and answers as to the science behind why my body and mind was reacting that way. And I was able to turn things around, which was great. But for several years, you know, I lived very small and reclusively. So I was functional, you know, I, I, you know, drove my vehicle, went to work, did my job and came home. I worked out outside of that, but you know, like I was functional, but I was existing. I wasn't living, you know, I was a shell of the person that I once was, didn't want to go to the VA because I knew the the VA, the Veterans Administration, you know, at the time it, the answer would have been like, here, take, take these medications. And, you know, being a health nut, <laughs> I was like, no way am I going to get on some pills, you know, and try to feel better. There's, I've got to push through and pushing through it as tough as it was and not being able to talk to anyone. I emerged stronger you know, even if I really wasn't living life the way I could have been, you know? So I I feel like, you know, I lost most of my thirties, but the answers I found along the way changed my life. But then it it got to the point where I realized I've got value to share with others because no matter what people are going through, if you, you know, follow this example and just believe in yourself and push through and then eventually, you know, reach out to others who can help you, you can really turn your life around and come out stronger, better, happier, more fulfilled than you ever were. So it was a long journey, but it's definitely very fulfilling to be able to take those struggles and translate it into how, how I did with the book and the uh, freedom triangle concept that um, I introduced in the book. So it was a journey, but I never gave up on myself, no matter how bad things were. And they were bad. And I do talk about that in the story, some examples of how, you know, how rough some of those low points were. Yeah, definitely. I, I, there are a few things in what you said that, that I want to pull out and talk about first, the fact that your experience of exiting 
was almost the exact same as not really not exiting, but coming home was the almost exact same as, as my husband, Zach's from the time that he left Afghanistan to the time that he was sitting on our couch was five days. Yep. Zero, you know, accountability, zero check-in, nothing. He didn't even know how to file a VA claim to get help, you know? So he had to learn how to do it. And then he had to teach all his guys how to do it. So it's, it's incredible that in almost 10 years, nothing has changed with the VA, you know, and it's, it's, it's definitely there, but needs reform hundred percent. And it's, it's interesting to me to, to hear that as a reservist and him being a, a national guard guys had almost the exact same experience almost no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was over 10 years later. Well, well, I got out in 2007. So I know there have been a lot of reforms in the past couple of years. Thank, thankfully to, mm-hmm. um, you know, thanks to our president, there's been a lot more accountability and change. And now, you know, obviously my transition time was what, 20, 20, 13 years ago. So I don't know. And obviously we, you know, we've had the drawdown, so it's different now. You know, we'd have to ask someone who um, got out recently, but at the same point, like the concept of self-reliance and not depending on a system to try to help you and finding solutions on your own and doing whatever it takes to keep putting one foot in front of the other is, is something that I believe in because yes. it's great if you can get the right help, but you don't want to rely on it. You, you don't want to have that dependency. You know, if it's there and it works, wonderful. That's bonus. But regardless of whether someone's been to war, which, you know, that's less than 1% of us today in our modern generation, or regardless of if you've been through something traumatic and tough or whatnot, I, I highly recommend that people not depend on systems. You could turn towards systems, of course, but you have to find that inner resolve. You have to make that commitment yourself that you're going to push through and it may not be easy and you may not have help, but you owe it to yourself to bury that and put that in the past. And you do so by taking care of yourself and mentally pushing forth and not allowing the past to dictate your future. Definitely. I 100% agree with that. And I do want to kind of dive into that a little bit of what are maybe some baby steps and first actions that these men and women can take, whether or not they've been to a combat zone or they've just been, you know, deployed from their families for, you know, a year or so like that in and of itself is traumatic. And so what are some first steps of being able to be there for yourself and continue to grow and and help your mental health state after all of this is Mm -hmm. said and done? Yeah, no, absolutely. Regardless of a a traumatic situation or, you know, maybe it wasn't a traumatic situation. Like I wouldn't describe what I went through as a traumatic situation because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be at war. What I realized or learned afterwards working with veterans nonprofits was that the, you know, exposures we had, the toxins and the burn pits and so on and so forth is what affected so many of our health, you know, our, our health can't even speak <laughs> so much of our health, I should say. So that being said, regardless of a struggle, a bad situation, it, whether it's traumatic or, or not, you know, when you emerge out of that, the very first step to take is to make that commitment to yourself. And I would suggest writing it down. Okay. Even if you rip it up, throw it away or write it down and put it away, say, I will overcome this and I will become stronger in the process. 
and do it every day. Do it every day. You have to believe it. You can't just tell somebody you're going to do it. You know, do it for yourself. You have to make that commitment because the bottom line is this. If you don't make that commitment to yourself, if you don't have that intention, if you don't set that trajectory, you're not going to get there. You know, if you think other people are going to come in and magically save you and fix you and help you, you you know, good luck. (laughs) I mean, that may help, you know, you may receive help along the way, but you have to set yourself up for helping yourself first. And the very first step is to write it down, write it down, write it down every single day and start dialing your mind to really believe that you're going to emerge stronger, that you're going to overcome whatever it is that you went through. That would be the very, very, very first step I would recommend. The second step I would say is you have to take care of yourself first, meaning your health. Okay. So we, you know, a lot of times when we think of health, we think just physical health, but physical health is tied to mental health. And if you want to be able to think clearly and make great, you know, wise decisions and judgment when you need to, you have to be able to think without distraction. So there's two parts. One is you want to remove any toxicity from your life. Okay. But from a health standpoint, that means if you have a lot of processed foods, if you have alcohol, you know, cigarettes, drugs, anything that's going to affect your body's overall health and well-being. Okay. Those things are not going to help you make, you know, have clarity and be able to make clear judgment going forward. So you have to do an assessment and look at what it is that you're putting in your body. What are you consuming? So that would be the first step. The second step would be to actually embrace clean eating, healthy living. Okay. Do this by eating well or eating better, at least eating better than you were before. Because people don't realize the impact, especially when we're young, we're invincible, right? But we don't realize the impact that the quality, the foods that we eat has on our mind. So I remember when we were in Iraq, we were, you know, obviously eating a lot of processed food and then pounding those, those, what was it? Monsters, monster drinks and energy drinks, like super high in caffeine and sugar. And, you know, that kept us going nonstop mission after mission after mission. But no wonder I hit a, a brick wall when I came home, you know, that that's not good. That's not a way to sustain your health and well-being. So you have to make in- incremental changes in your, your diet, your intake, and that'll help you greatly because when you're able to eat cleanly, your body is not going to be full of inflammation and that's not going to affect your thinking. You're going to be able to sleep better. You know, how do we all feel after, you know, a bad night of sleep or lack of sleep versus a great night of sleep? So I would suggest after writing your intention down first is to look at your intake and start improving that so that you can make clear decisions going forth. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O-thriving-A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.